Today's episode is brought to you by No Boring Design. Wow, what a name. No, we know this team well. We've brought them in to help with a number of engagements when design becomes a bottleneck for shipping campaigns quickly. Uh, also when design is boring, right? A lot of B2B status quo becomes boring and it doesn't have to be. So we bring this team in, they level up the quality design and they remove design as a bottleneck to ship campaigns, content, product marketing assets, you name it. If it needs a design and you're hung up on it, this team can help. Um, somehow they managed to do this. I think their price point starting out is 2,500 a month. Uh, obviously goes up from there, but what a great resource. We've seen them firsthand do great work with Dropbox, Yelp, a number of our big clients they've been a part of. So check them out, noboringdesign.com, noboringdesign.com. Welcome to season three of Best in SaaS, where we talk through patterns and playbooks in the revenue sprint to 100 million in ARR and beyond with the industry's most accomplished executives, entrepreneurs, and investors. Season three is brought to you by Chargebee. Chargebee helps SaaS businesses of all sizes maximize the growth potential and revenue with a leading global subscription management platform that delivers fast time to value plus exceptional service and support. Learn more at chargebee.com. All right. Hey, this is the, this is the uh, this is my first show back after paternity leave, and I'm really amped to have Andrew Hahn on the line with me. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you, and congratulations on a young, beautiful baby girl. Thank you. Well, so listen, for this conversation, I mean, you there's a lot we could talk about. You've built and sold two tech companies. You were part of LA's largest IPO as a global VP. And I know there are a couple of failures as well that you like to talk about as part of your stories. But why don't we why don't we just take a step back, give you a second to give everyone some context on your background before we dive in deeply. Cool, man. Uh, thanks again for having me on the show. Uh, 20 years in SaaS. So I was in SaaS before SaaS was cool. Uh, built, started and sold my own AI and NLP company right out of college. The exit was about this big, but it's a cool story, which I can embellish if needed. Um Got into ethics and compliance out of uh, right after that, which is a very strange fit, but doing e-learning. What I learned early, I was there for about six years, you know, post Enron and WorldCom. I got to work with companies like eBay, Google, Agilent, Sempra, Disney, but I got to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with CEOs to guide them on overall global compliance program. I got to meet with Meg Whitman on a frequent basis. And I remember at 25 in a room with her where I realized you don't have to be the smartest person in the room, but you need to be a subject matter expert and a trusted advisor on whatever it is that you're positioning to guide them. And I think that's kind of been how I've done pretty decent in my career. After that, I got into sales leadership. You talked about the tech IPO, worked at a company called Cornerstone On Demand. Amazing ride, was there for about six years. Uh, in addition to the IPO, probably the best accomplishment was meeting my wife who's a chief product officer and the proof that sales and product can be symbiotic and live together. Um, jumped to a few companies. I actually had a big failure after Cornerstone and I got let go and they were right to let me go. I think I rested on my laurels and I didn't really do the homework or get my hands dirty like I had before on the persona, on um, the intended buyer, the problems, the the niche, the, the industry. And that was kind of... The, the springboard for me to up my game. 
Uh, got successful in the market research on the SaaS side, joined IBM Watson, which was an interesting ride. Had a midlife crisis and started a uh, fitness company that was backed by Adam Miller, CEO of Cornerstone. Uh, my latest role as chief revenue officer, uh, running sales, marketing, and alliances. But I'm just passionate about disrupting, but coming up with creative ideas for product-led growth, consumption-based usage, and just getting a little creative and using best practices, but also trying to fail and learning from those failures. So I'm going to jump around a little bit. Thank you for that overview. Well, I'm going to jump around even more. So I think we'll be fine. Perfect. You said something earlier when we were chatting and and it stuck out to me because this is something I rant about all the time. You said MQLs are bullshit. And Mm -hmm. I I love that, but I'd love to hear from your perspective. Like, how did you come to that statement? What, What drives that for you? She wrote a paper on that. Um, so we talked about my wife and we talked about how product and sales, the marriage. I see sales and marketing as a brother-sister relationship. I wrote an article on that too. And I say that because you're born into this relationship and you love each other regardless, but you fight. You disagree, but you're still the ones talking shit at the Christmas dinner about everyone else. Like there's still that unique bond. I think the The headbutting from sales and marketing comes from a lack of quantitative alignment. And what I mean is, I don't care if you get me a million MQLs from a trade show of no one that is interested in our actual product. I care about the ability to convert them to SQLs. So are MQLs bullshit? Of course not. I have to imagine they're decently qualified, but our ability to move them into SQLs, equally important is the alignment and the trust and motivating the marketing leaders, not just on MQLs and SQLs, but on actual revenue attainment. So our success is their success. 100%. Yeah, I always love unpacking that with sales leaders. As a marketing leader, I believe that that MQLs are a good leading indicator internally for the marketing team, but they should never brag to anyone outside of the marketing team or even talk about MQLs with anyone outside of the marketing team. Like it should just be, are we driving revenue that closes? Like yeah, you should, see my batting av- you should see my batting average in my six-year-old's little league. Like if that's how we're quantifying things, but I think what we need to step up is the actual competition, you know, the SQL of 40 somethings. Exactly. So. so walk me through your, your sales methodology because I know one of, as every good sales leader should think like you're, you're all about leveling up your people. And I'm curious how you approach that. What kind of common threads you see as you step into a new sales team and, and begin yeah. to grow it? No, it's a great question. And thank you. So first of all, when you step in, I think the worst thing you can do is just make quick changes. First thing you need to do is learn the product, learn the people, be likable and earn their trust. Get feedback on what's working at the company and what's not working. Um, I built a playbook. It's over a hundred pages. I uh, never thought it would be that long. And the impetus was So many salespeople, no one majored in sales in college. So many salespeople are likable, smart, they can follow up, they kind of know the product. But I think there's a huge gap specifically from the SDR to the AE stage. Hey, you were really good at bringing in leads and setting people up, go be an AE. And I believe there should be stages because the SDR life cycle is about eight, nine months. So inbound SDR, outbound SDR, strategic account executive, and then a, I don't want to say a real account executive, but a, a tenured account executive. When I talked about so many people lacking the foundation, the playbook served as a common ground for people to increase their winning chances. So here's a basketball metaphor here. 
Imagine having a bunch of great basketball players doing their own thing. Now imagine them all running the same play, knowing the same calls. Like the way we coach people, how we do one-on-ones, whether it's through gong or other methodologies, the vernacular that we use on what is a compelling event, uh, having the same criteria as we move things forward. If you don't have a foundation, if you can't upskill these people, and whether that's the playbook, whether that's reading the same book, whether it's getting outside coaching, everyone needs to be running the same plays to increase the probability for each individual to win. This is a common, there's a common parallel here on the marketing side where a lot of times teams will get obsessed with some of these metrics that they know other people are paying attention to and they lose sight of the cracks and where things fall through the cracks and the handoff even between marketing and sales and, and the, and the, the, the SOP therein, right? Between the two orgs, like how are we, how do we communicate effectively as marketing to sales on like the context that this lead even has going over the fence? Like what's their life cycle look like to date so that the sales team can begin to pick up where we left off and understands that important context. I'm curious, what are some of those, I talked about slipping through the cracks. What are some of those cracks on the sales side that you find are really important, whether it be initial discovery or like, where are those? There's a couple. So one is in the discovery. And I think deals are won and lost at discovery. So think about the, specifically from marketing side, think about the journey of today's modern buyer. You know, back in the day when I was selling, you know, as an individual contributor, we were outbound and we were trying to make them aware of a new product or a solution in place. Today's buyer, modern buyer is so much educated. If I'm going to, sorry for the poor English, (laughs) if I'm going to buy your software, I know I have a problem. My boss is aware there's a problem. We know we're going to spend money. We've researched you. We've researched your competitors. We've looked at G2. We've spoken to our friends. We've spoken to our peers. If you don't understand how they got to you, you just start selling your product, you're going to lose them. So I use a a quote, and it's the only time you're going to hear me quote myself, which is, the product demo is the emotional validation of a buyer's future state. What that means is don't rush to the demo. The goal is to understand how they got to you and ask them intelligent questions about the pain, about the future state. I love this book called Gap Selling by Keenan, and it's where you are today in this believed future state. When I walk into BMW and I want a convertible, I already imagine how I'm going to be looking driving down the PCH. I already imagine, I've already factored in how much gas costs. Don't sell me the car. Understand what's important to me and focus on those pain points in that future state. The product demo will be the validation. They already believe that you can solve such a problem. Totally. So that's that's discovery. What are yes. some other kind of hairy pieces that you like, you you see crop up time and time again? Yeah, I think it's transfer of knowledge from the SDR or BDR to the AE as well. So we've all been, I'll I'll choose something that we've all dealt with. Best Buy, I'm not picking on them, but you call and there's an issue with your fridge and someone listens to you, they take notes about the delivery, the scuff, the freezer, and then you ask to speak to a manager. Now, the average example is, hi, this is Andrew at, you know, supervisor at Best Buy, how can I help you? Well, I just spoke to someone else and these are the problems. Now imagine this manager comes on board and says, hey, thank you for speaking to Jonathan. As I understand, your delivery was late. They scuffed up your door and your freezer's not working. Is that correct? Yeah, it is correct. Also, my other problem is this. Wonderful. I'm here to help you. Why did you get that? Like That transfer of knowledge makes people realize that their time was valuable investing in you 
And now you could focus more on solutions and less on discovery and earn the right to ask deeper questions in discovery. So now I'm getting away from this metaphor. So in speaking with the SDR, I understand that one of your issues is data accuracy. Is that right? Yeah. Well, tell me more about it. You're earning the right to ask intelligent questions in discovery because you're not starting at the first step. All right. So before we get on to the second half of this episode, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our close friends over at Mattermade. For those of you who don't know them, Mattermade helps some of the fastest growing B2B SaaS companies drive revenue as an extension of their marketing teams. We're talking companies like Dropbox, Calm, Loom, Product Board, and many others who trust Mattermade to help them drive their marketing and demand gen initiatives. You can check out their seemingly endless supply of case studies over at mattermade.co. Now let's get back to the episode. So in, in prior conversations you and I have had, you've talked about how people don't buy from people they like, which I think... Uh, I love this because it's not necessarily the universal, like there are a lot of people out there who operate from this place of like my Rolodex and, and these, sure. th- this sort of idea. So walk, let's walk the listeners through how you got to that statement. Yeah. First of all, on a different note, never take a job where they're going to hire you for your Rolodex. Uh, and you Gen Zs, if you don't know what a Rolodex is, <laughs> but it's essentially who you know and what your network is. Because even though you can have some early success, then what? Like, I, I think that's a real problem. And I already forgot the question because I was laughing about Rolodex. Can you? Can you <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so I, you've told me before. Oh, you know, people lie. Yeah, they, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I spoke to my stepdad recently who sold Radio Time. He's now 80. So he sold Radio Time 30 years ago. And people bought from him because he was really likable. He would go out to lunch. They would grab a drink. And whether you buy radio from KNX or KFWB, I mean, obviously the demographic info, you know, it's 25 to 49 and here's the ratings, but they bought from people they like. So I like to think of how people buy in a four box quadrant. So I'm going to choose, I already brought up BMW, I'm going to choose cars. So at the top left, you go in and the salesman is not likable and they don't know anything about cars. You're going to walk out. Then you have someone who is extremely likable, but doesn't know the product at all. So you're asking questions about price, horsepower, whatever it is. And you're like, yeah, they're really nice. I call this the hug at the end of the first date. And think of that metaphor. I really like you and I'll return your call, but you're not getting past that hug. Then on the other side, which is unusual, the BMW salesperson isn't that likable, but they know cars inside and out. They ask questions. What have you driven? What's important to you? Safety features, whatever. And they, they're abrasive, but... They're a trusted advisor. They really understand who you are and what you're trying to get. And at the bottom right is obvious, trusted advisor and highly likable. So we can obviously bring this over to sales and software. I'm not saying be rude and be an a-hole, but I'm saying it's more important to be that trusted advisor that we talked about early on that knows the product, that knows the problem space and can talk about clients of common characteristics that we've solved this problem for. Great. You're looking for a CRM. What's important to you? Well, we had other clients that came to us and they were able to do this. Absolutely be likable, but also be trustworthy and be a subject matter expert on the problem that you solve is more important than being likable. Yeah, I love that. It's it's woven into the ability to tell a story about something that really matters to someone as opposed to just telling your story, right? 
It's not about us, man. <laughs> I mean, when you and I first spoke, we talked about kids and instinctually, I'm like, cool story, bro. Let me tell you about how I raise my kids. <laughs> I, I think it's it's a knee-jerk reaction. And I think the the instinct is a bonding one. But if I ask more questions about how your wife is doing, uh, how is it changing your sleep ha- habits? Do you still get the golf? Like that bonds us more than the the natural instinct for me to talk about my experience and then make it a little about you. So I feel better that it wasn't all about me. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad we deconstructed our first five minutes of conversation for everyone. Yes. Um, so Andrew, walk me through, I'd love to hear, and we haven't talked about this before, so it'll be, it'll be news to me. Maybe tell me a story about a failure or a stumbling that you've had along the way that ultimately led to your greatest growth or a moment of great growth. Yeah, I'm going to bring up two. You know, one is we talked about likability. I think likability internally within a company is more important than ever. Uh, People rally behind people that they like. And I think earlier in my career, being a subject matter expert at something and being overwhelmed, overworked, I rubbed some people the wrong way. And I think as sales leaders, that happens. Was I an a-hole to everyone? No. But at times when I was slammed and an AE reached out and asked for help, cool, I'm here for you. What do you need? What does a buyer want? What is the goal? Cool. Here's what I suggest. I don't know how you make time for everyone. But again, when we talk about going into a new role, I think you have an opportunity to earn the trust of people. And I think specifically in this remote culture, I assume trust probably way too quick because we've talked sports. We've talked family. We've, all right, here's what to do. So first of all is I needed to be a little more sensitive to how I came off and actually care about what other people think. Does that mean I was an a-hole? No, it meant four out of five people really liked me and one out of five, I rubbed the wrong way. But in supporting 600 AEs with my lazy math, I pissed off 120 people. That's a lot of people. The second we spoke about early on, I got fired from a job. It was a startup and they're doing great and they were right to fire me because I believe the first 90 days on anyone's job is so important. And not the old 90 day, what are your goals? But your ability to establish trust, to build a plan, to know the persona, to know the industry, to build a scalable model for the future is imperative. And I went into that role just looking at what I had done in the past and my ego was too big, man. It's a great book by Adam Grant called Unthink or Think Again. And he talks about historical best practices that worked for you might be antiquated. Think about how much sales and marketing has changed in the last two years. What worked for me six years ago, I'm sure there's tidbits that I can take away, but I need to evolve and challenge and grow. I just graduated CRO school, which is a unique thing to do, but I'm just on a quest for knowledge. So one, try to be likable because not just for the effort of trying to be likable, but it is about bonding. It is about connection. It is about trust. Uh, And two is whatever adventure you have, whether it's at your same job, a new challenge, a new role, be a master, be a subject matter expert and a trusted advisor. Because, you know, the old rule of fake it till you make it is bullshit, man. Like you can't fake it. You can fake initial conversations, but to earn the credibility of your peers, the people that report to you, your prospects and your clients, it's going to be really obvious if they're subject matter experts and you're bullshitting your way through. Totally. And so as we wind this thing down, I have two more questions for you. One is, you know, you, you have to be the example, as you were just saying, like not only liked, but really set the tone for your 600 person organization. If we use that example from your past, what do you do personally just to, to keep your energy level such that you're able to show up for your team in that way? 
I fell asleep at eight o'clock last night, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of sleep. That's the answer. <laughs> um, I'm a maniac. I think part of it is I'm passionate. Like if you talk about my successes versus my failures, it's where I've been passionate. There's a great quote, which I'm going to butcher, but people don't burn out from companies. They burn out because they lose passion for what they're doing. Of course, working 14 hour days is going to burn you out. But LeBron James keeps working out after games because he's fixated on being the best and he's passionate about helping his team. Uh, I, I think that's really important. And I already forgot the question again because I started talking basketball. <laughs> it was uh, maybe you've answered the question. Oh, you're talking about passion. See, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What gives you energy? Um, so it's born within me when you're passionate about what you're talking about, when you're passionate about the people. My problem is I wake up early, I ride the Peloton, play with my kids, I go, 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 I work out, I send some more emails, and I am done at five or six o'clock at night. I can return emails, I can watch YouTube with my son, but I burn it at both ends and I don't know how to conserve energy. So I don't have the answer, but I know what happenstantially works for me. And actually that's another growth opportunity, which when I'm passionate about the people I work with and believe in their cause, something I need to work on as well is when people are not at the top of the game and not showing a propensity and desire to learn. I think that's when I start slumping and I, you see it in my face. I want to work with people that are resilient and want to grow and want to get better. And then lastly, I'm curious who some of the people, you know, we've all had mentors and, and even if they're peers, just people along the way who have given us energy, helped us find our footing as we come into our own as leaders. Um, who are some of those people for you? Great question that I'm unprepared to speak to. So let me think. <laughs> I've worked with some great people. I've never had someone I've directly reported to that I would consider a mentor. And that's not a knock on any of them. They were busy people doing great things. They were advocates. Uh, my dad, first and foremost, he was a VP of sales back in the day. He unfortunately passed when I was 21, but his voice and his, I know what he would say and do. Absolutely. Then my other mentors, I played competitive sports. And just, I mean, I hate to choose LeBron and Kobe, but just their passion to wanting to get better every single day. Uh, my wife, uh, we are yin and yang, literally. We're very different people. She calls me out on my BS and encourages me to be a better person and to think differently. And then I've got a level of spirituality I won't go too deep into, but just the consistent drive to be altruistic and try to be a better person every day, which I fail at frequently. The books I read, uh, again, Adam Grant's books are great. Keenan's books are great. But I would just say it's, you know, podcasts like this, you know, investing time and not even mentors, but just, I think you need to take a little from every medium and every input factor and kind of build your own, your own journey. Love it. Well, Andrew, this has been super fun. I'm glad, uh, glad we spent some time together and excited to see what, what you get up to next. Uh, thank you for having me. Congrats again uh, on being a first time dad. I would like to say it gets easier, but you're about 10 years from it getting easier. So <laughs> ready for it or, or maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> love it. Love it. <laughs>